This New America NYC event took place on February 27, 2017, and is titled Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy, and features Tressie McMillan Cottom, Robert Shireman, Laura Hanna, Sarah Jaffe, and Stephen Berg. Uh, well, welcome to New America, uh, our New York uh, branch. Uh, my name is Stephen Bird, and I am a senior policy analyst in the education policy program at New America. Um, and tonight, we're going to be talking about for-profit higher education, which uh, is a topic that's very close to my heart. I've uh, worked on this uh, for a number of years. Um, more specifically, though, we're going to be talking about a new book, Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy, by Tressie McMillan Cotton. <laughs> yes. She's an uh, assistant professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. Tressie uh, began her career as a recruiter at two for-profit higher education institutions, and her book examines the societal and economic forces that led to the dramatic expansion of this troubling industry during one of the worst financial crises uh, in our history. She writes about how for-profit colleges capitalize on our country's education gospel, the faith that all education is inherently good and moral. That faith has led students, particularly low-income and minority students, to take on unmanageable levels of debt to attend often subpar schools, believing that they're making a good investment in their futures. Unfortunately, many of them have been left off worse than before they enrolled, financially distressed, and without the training they need to become gainfully employed in their fields of study. In what may be my favorite passage in the book, Tressie writes, whether you're a kindergarten teacher, an admissions counselor, or a college professor, working in education is a lot like being a priest. You shepherd people's collective faith in themselves and their trust in social institutions. When you're a recruiter at a for-profit college, you're more like a television evangelist. The faith sounds alike. The dreams are similar. Sorry. Um, but instead of big tent revivals that promise, promise strength during difficult times, you sell prayer cloths that promise to solve all of a believer's problems. And I have to say, when I read that, I was like, this is the best introduction to a higher education book I've read in a really long time. Uh, just I wish I, I wish I wrote like that. Um, our discussion tonight comes at a really pivotal time. Uh, for eight years, the Obama administration attempted, with some degrees of success, to rein in the worst of the for-profit uh, college industry. Over the last couple of years, two of the largest companies, Corinthian Colleges and ITT, which together served maybe around 150,000 students or so a year, were forced to shut down after multiple federal and state investigations found that they had defrauded students with deceptive recruiting, uh, uh, with deceptive re uh, recruiting tactics. Now, there's a new administration in town. I'm sure you've heard of them. Um, this administration is led by a president who ran his own scandal-plagued for-profit school, Trump University. And we have an education secretary who has financial investments in for-profit education companies. Much of the regulatory gains that have been made in recent years will likely be reversed. But the question is, will the for-profit higher ed education industry which have seen enrollments, uh, enrollments plummet 
and their reputations tarnished, be able to recover and return to their glory days? Or, uh, and another question is, will new players, like the boot camps that Tressie writes about, gain access to the federal student aid programs and potentially put students and taxpayers at risk? We obviously have a lot to discuss tonight, so I'm just gonna go ahead and introduce our panelists and then we can get started. Uh, in addition to Tressie, we have Bob Shireman, uh, who is a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, a nonpartisan think tank in DC. As the former deputy undersecretary at the Education Department, he was the key architect of the Obama administration's efforts to uh, crack down on fraud and abuse in the for-profit college industry. I don't know if you would describe it that way, but okay. <laughs> Back in the day, he had to be a little more politic than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we also have uh, Laura Hanna, uh, who is the founder. I hope I said that right. Is it Hanna or Hanna? Hanna, good. Who is the founder and co-director of the Deck Collective, which has fought to have the government discharge. Uh, student loan debt for uh, for-profit college students uh, who have been defrauded. And we have Sarah Jaffe, who is a journalist and a fellow at the Nation Institute. She writes about labor issues, economic justice, social movements, politics, gender, and pop culture. So I'm going to start off things by asking uh, Tressie a few questions. Hi, I'm Tressie. <laughs> um, Tressie. So I thought, I mean, I thought one of the most just fascinating parts of the book was about your experiences uh, working in the for-profit uh, for profit colleges as a recruiter. So I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit about that, and especially tell us about uh, your interactions with uh, the prospective student named Jason, who you mentioned, uh, and uh, how that affected you. Sure. First of all, hi, everybody. Thank you for coming out this evening. I really, really appreciate that. Um, uh, I don't leave my house for almost anything, so I don't take, <laughs> do not take this for granted. Thank you yeah, very yeah. much, Stephen, for the introduction. So let's see. So my experiences, I'll try to do this in a nutshell. I am from North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, mostly. Hey, I'm right now. I thought I liked the look of you. How are you? I got another one in the back that I know of. All right. Uh, so. I knew the local landscape of schools in Charlotte the way one does when you're growing up, right? You drive past these places, you know people who go to them. Um, and so I am uh, fresh out of school, had not graduated yet from undergrad, so I was one of these students, right? Swirled in and out is how we would talk about that now. Um, and I came out in a very different time. There were these things called jobs, <laughs> right? I now, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So very, it was a very, very different time. Um, and I walked into a job like it was not considered sort of like the end of your life that you'd gone to get a job, other than the fact that my parents were very upset with me. Um, but my first was working in a cosmetology school, which in the book I call the beauty school, a place that again I had grown up knowing about. Especially I think in the South is quite common. These were the kind of places you go get your hair done for cheap, right? And so the idea that it was a strange place did not exist for me. I certainly knew it was not like my undergraduate institution, which was North Carolina Central University, um, the good school in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and <laughs> I, I knew it wasn't like that, right? But I had no reason, but people don't live at the cosmetology school. You live at your undergraduate institution. And for me, that was the primary distinction, right? It wasn't residential. 
Um, uh, I was recruited to work there, which was actually a pretty interesting experience. They recruited the employees, not unlike how they ended up recruiting students, okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> which was this hard sell about how much you would be helping people. And I am very susceptible to this sell. I come from um, uh, the type of family where women are very dominant. I think that's putting it lightly, um, <laughs> right? And the idea that I would be mostly helping other young women resonated with me. Again, it's a cosmetology school. This is a gendered career, right? And it's not like you could go anywhere else and get a cosmetology degree, right? So for all of these reasons, it seemed perfectly natural to me. Uh, I worked there for about a year and then was recruited um, to another for-profit school. This is important. I did not know these things as for-profit. This was not a concept that I was familiar with. In that way, I'm like most people. Those of us who do this now for a living take this for granted, but for me, one of the most shocking things was to reflect on my own experiences and then later to see some of the survey data and realize that the designation for-profit college does not have broad resonance in the public discourse. People have no idea. They think we mean private colleges. Right, which to be fair, you know, <laughs> if we wanted to get specific about things, um, but right, it really did not mean to people what we thought it meant, which was warning, warning, will, um, right, okay. So I get recruited, I was, but I looked out at this audience and realized it was not gonna work. Um, okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, appreciate that, thanks, okay. Um, song. <laughs> Someone, someone, bring the bottle up front. We've got a promise of karaoke. You're on the record there. Um, and I get recruited to the technical college, as I call it, throughout the book. And this is a vastly different world. Not only were my students quite different, again, almost everybody that I had enrolled at the cosmetology school were women, uh, disproportionately African-American, working class to low income to really quite poor. Many of them, I helped them with their welfare paperwork, for example, right, to stay eligible for things like daycare subsidies, et cetera. If you were transitioning from those good old days of, you know, moving, though, when we moved those millions of people from welfare to work, Right? One, of, one of the ways that you could stay eligible for welfare was to either have a job or to be training for one. And there was a very narrow set of schools that could do that for you that qualified for your welfare eligibility. And the beauty school was one of them. Uh, the technical college was a vastly different universe. More of the students were men. In fact, I put it at about half of them were men. Certainly dealt with more white men, for example. Of those that I dealt with, um, they were disproportionately um, working at the time that they were coming back to school, whereas most of my students at the cosmetology school were not. Right? So we're dealing with a different race, class, gender sort of composition of the student body there. And we're dealing with a different type of organization. All right? The technical college made it very clear to me on by my second day that we were not there to help people, as I had been sold at the cosmetology school. And she made it very clear, my sales director said, or my admissions director at the time said, we are not, you know, we're not a counseling service, we are a sales force, right? And I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't, I've literally never wanted to sell anybody anything a day in my life. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that sounds horrible. But I really didn't understand the concept of selling education. It, was, it, it, was, it did not, um, um, I couldn't reconcile it with what I understood college was. Again, I am... African-American from the South part of the Great Migration story. Education to us is about liberation. I don't have any concept of the idea of a bad education, right? 
all school is good where I'm from, like millions of other people. There's no such thing as bad school. And so I really didn't have a framework for this, honestly, until I started working with the students. And Jason was the one, um, well, Jason is why I quit. <laughs> so I'd been working with Jason's uh, young man at the time. I'd put him about 22 years old, married, always came in with his wife. They were adorable. They really were. Um, devoutly religious. Um, uh, and so, you know, they always prayed before we spoke, prayed before they left. Um, made their decisions prayerfully, they tell me. And because of that, it was hard to close Jason, right? Because he needed to go home and pray first. Uh, and, my, and my admissions director gets very upset with me that it's taken so long to close Jason, right? And she sits me down one day and she goes, you know, have you done the sale? And there's a sales technique. And I went, no, I ain't, I ain't done none of that. Um, because again, I told you, I don't like the idea of selling. So she's gonna show me how it's done, right? And she does. She closes Jason by sort of pushing him through the process as she made me watch. But then what Jason couldn't get done is he couldn't get his financial aid paperwork done, right? Because he had a balance left over that he was going to need to figure out how to pay after financial aid had been applied. He has no credit, no money. And the only person in his family that he could think of that could co-sign for his student loan was an elderly aunt who was on Social Security. And he was about to call her to do it. And I couldn't. I asked him to go home and pray. And <laughs> I knew it would work. <laughs> and, and seriously, and then I cleaned out my desk. I went to the bathroom. I gave Jason a call and asked him to please call the local community college that I had called down there for him and I had to get him a name and a phone number. And I left. It's not until three or four years later that I know the term for profit colleges, that I know that's where I had worked, and that I start to think about what that means. Um, uh, for people like Jason, but what it also meant for me and what I had learned about what it meant for lots of other people. Sure. You mentioned uh, that you also went to a meeting where they talked about this new credit program that they were going to offer for people like Jason who didn't have the money where federal aid wasn't enough. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so this is uh, in between, I mean, I remember this very clearly. This is in between when my uh, admissions director had sat me down and, you know, tell me how I needed to close Jason, and she's got a list of questions about what I should have said to him. Uh, and the very next day, we've got a sales meeting with quote-unquote corporate, which was a big deal. They were coming down from the corporate office. Uh, we all meet in this sort of rally, you know, those things like you see them do at Walmart for employees and stuff, you know, it was a truly, yes, there was a rally, sort of. No, it wasn't a cheer. We weren't that cool. But there was definitely a sort of rock kind of, I mean, they'd gotten food and they never fed us and, you know, and they had put on the good, you know. So it was a bit of a show. And I remember the guy coming in, he was the vice president. And he said, listen, I've been in finance. He was an accountant before he had become the VP of the technical college. He's like, and I've never seen anything like what's happening in the economy right now. You know, and he's explaining how credit is drying up and it's terrifying to me. Um, while not far from a sociologist and an economist at the time, I was still kind of fairly bright. I mean, like I read the newspaper and I thought that didn't sound good, right? He was describing what we would know in about six months as a great recession, right? Saying he'd never seen anything like it. But he'd come to tell us everything was okay because they had come up with this wonderful program where while our students would no longer probably be able to get the cheap credit from a credit card or something like that to pay their, their balance after the student aid had been applied, they had come up with an arrangement with a loan company 
to offer direct subsidi unsubsidized loans to the student, right? At extremely high interest rates, but it, you were fairly guaranteed to qualify. So the problem with these sort of private loans generally is that they have underwriting criteria. You have to be credit worthy, right? If you are the typical for-profit college student, you come with a lot of history of things that would make it likely that you would be not credit worthy, right? Lack of income, lack of family wealth, et cetera. So it was a big deal to have someone who was willing to extend these students money that didn't have very strict credit underwriting guidelines. And from the school's perspective, even better, wouldn't require a cosigner. Because cosigners slowed down the process. Right? You had to go convince them to sign. You had to chase them down. Right? You had to make them come in. When they wouldn't come in, they might make you go to them. Right? This, was, this was wonderful. It was going to cut out the cosigner. Right? And get rid of sort of the fear that many of these students had about passing the credit check. And he was there to tell us, isn't this great? And everybody in the room was like, yeah, it's great. And I thought, that does not sound good. <laughs> now, because this is what I do know based on who I was at the time. Again, African-American from the South had my own experiences of not having a whole lot of income or family wealth. We ain't coming from no money. And this is what I knew, that that type of financial arrangement, other things that sounded like that had been bad for people I knew before. It sounded an awful lot like one of those pay here, buy here, car loan type things to me. And I remember saying, oh, I know somebody who that was horrible for. It was my cousin. Um, <laughs> I remember her buying that car and what a drama it had turned into for her life. And what he was describing sounded like that. So again, I have no concept yet of really kind of how these things work in the macro sense. But my experience of poor people's financial arrangements suggested that this did not sound good, <laughs> right? And so it was part of my decision to leave. Yeah. And what's interesting, those kind of uh, institutional private loans that schools were giving out actually came back to bite some of those schools because of the amount of bad debt that they were giving out. So, and they couldn't uh, move it around yeah. long enough, fast enough. That's yeah. right. Um, so uh, obviously you're, you uh, have experience as a recruiter. I thought one of the strongest parts of the book, you talk about uh, the recruiting process and how fast everything is. And I, so I wanted you just to talk a little bit about that. So I had my experience. So you know, many years later, I'm in a PhD program intending to do anything but study for-profit colleges. I was actually going to study Ronald Reagan. <laughs> True story. There is. Which I figured out later, but you're right. No, going into it, I didn't. I was going to write about the Ronald Reagan Legacy Project, which is a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> and I really did not want to write about this thing, but once I decided that I was, I had my experiences of how the admissions process had worked at uh, these schools. First of all, though, some time had passed. We had now gone through and come out of the Great Recession. Um, and frankly, I was now a researcher, right? And so I needed to figure out whether my, my experiences were um, representative of sort of a process. And I had a question. Um, my main question was, what kind of students is this process set up for? Right? This was a way for me to work backwards because I couldn't get access to the institutional level access that we're used to having at traditional colleges. Right? I couldn't go and say, I'm a researcher. Give me my institutional review uh, and let me sort of observe how you run your school. Right? It is a private entity. It doesn't have to grant that access. And because they are very, very concerned about regulatory environments, they don't grant it. But I had some clue that they were set up for a certain type of student, despite what they were saying to regulators, 
despite what they were saying to publics. And one way to think about getting at that without being sort of in the classroom and watching this unfold was to say, okay, who is this organization set up for? Who does the organization work for? That's a way for us to figure out who they have decided is their ideal student. It's like when we go to elite schools and we say, okay, who has the easiest time enrolling in Harvard? And then we work backwards from there and we figure out your chances of getting to Harvard are much higher if you come from wealth, from certain geographic regions, family backgrounds, et cetera. So I just wanted to know that about the for-profit college process. Um, so I enrolled at nine for-profit colleges over about seven or eight months, which was just to go through the enrollment process up to the point of fraud. I just want to be very clear about that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that was important yeah. for me. Yeah. I picked you getting to the point where yeah. Like the line was there and they said, okay, sign. Yeah. That is. And you just were like, Hi. No, you know what I did? I actually, thinking back to my student, I was like, you know, I think I got to pray about this. I did say, Because almost nobody yeah. will come off on you when you're like, you got to talk to Jesus. Uh, Everybody's uh, like, well, okay. All right. So, uh, but yes, up until, I walked right up until that point, but I was going through keeping a record of what kinds of things that they tell me about my labor market outcomes, the enrollment process, the financial aid process, how was it set up, how many people did I talk to, how many people was I handed over to, right, how much paperwork was or was not involved, I kept track of how often they called me on the phone, uh, I kept track of the messages they left for me, et cetera. And this is what we find out. Uh, First of all, the first question, which was, is there something specific about the for-profit college enrollment process that's about them being for-profit? And yes, there is. What I argue is they are all remarkably the same. If it wasn't about them being a for-profit college, they would have different admissions processes, right? One might do it over the phone, one might do it online, one might have had an a enrollment meeting and had a group of people, but nope, all of them have almost the exact same process as if they had been written by the exact same people, which is I either call or contact them online, a person then calls you, tries to set up a meeting, always within 72 hours, right? If you tell them that you can't meet sometime within that 72 hour period, they will offer you every accommodation in the world. I can stay until eight o'clock. You can bring a friend with you. You don't have childcare, bring your children. Right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can give you the bus routes, et cetera. Right? Once you arrive, the only form you ever have to fill out to enroll in a for-profit college has about five questions on it. And it's really just a marketing form. It wants to know your name, the phone numbers of some people that they can call if they lose your phone number. <laughs> right? The names of any of your friends who may be wanting to change their life too. Right? and any obstacles that you might have to achieving your dreams. Right? All remarkably the same form. You hand it over to a person, and from that point on, you only talk to one person, and they will do everything for you. They will call your high school to get your high school transcripts. Right? They will help you fill out your federal financial aid forms. They will call whomever they need to call to get the signatures on your paperwork. Right? It is like a concierge service. If you are poor, Nobody's ever paid this much attention to you in your life, right? And that feels an awful lot like care. If you're less poor, people have treated you this well before, and isn't that great? You deserve it, right? 
and it's going to save you time, right? And this is why I argue the process works for lots of groups of people who we typically think have nothing in common. Middle class white guys at the technical college and poor black women at the beauty college, right? The process works well for both of them, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you mentioned in the book that I thought was interesting was how uh, people treat you, uh, how the recruiters are treated differently if you bring your parents with you. Uh, can you explain that for a minute? So in the traditional college process, we assume parents are coming along. And in fact, we think of that as a really good indicator, right? Think about almost everybody in this room going to a traditional college. I'm looking at y'all. You were out <laughs> in New York on a whatever night this is, all of you did. But anyway, so think about your college process, right? Um, the parents' weekends, right? Who they addressed the forms to when they sent them, to the parents of so-and-so, right? Da, da, da. Not only do we assume, but really our entire college system, traditional college system is set up based on sort of a normative family structure. The questions we ask on federal financial aid forms, we assume you have access to your parents and their financial information, for example. Um, and so the process is set up to work for parents in traditional higher education. At the for-profits, what I saw was that when parents were involved, it was actually a potential roadblock to the process, right? So while they might invite you to bring your two toddlers with you, mm -hmm. right, if you didn't have childcare, no one invited you to bring your parents. Mm -hmm. right? And in fact, if they did, you got a slightly more abbreviated tour, mm -hmm. right? They walked you through quickly, gave you your folder, and sent you on your way. Right? It was when you're dealing in volume, which the profit motive insists that you must, because if 90% of your profit relies on generating tuition, you've got to generate a lot of tuition quarter over quarter, right? That's a volume business, right? So you want to minimize any roadblocks from getting a prospective student from the point of being a prospect to the point of being a guaranteed tuition revenue stream. And the quickest way to do that is to get them to sign the federal financial aid forms. And anyone with them that might make them ask some additional questions is a roadblock. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it's amazing. Um, so one of the things that sort of confused me in the book a little bit was uh, you seemed a little reluctant to actually call the schools predatory. Um, and having studied this industry for a long time, I don't have any problem saying that what they're doing is predatory. Um, so uh, why wouldn't you call them that? I think it lets us off the hook. So I had, a, uh, I had several goals when I wrote this. One, I really, 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 really wanted to destroy my arch nemesis, but that's a whole other conversation <laughs> that we could have another time. Um, that was a personal goal. The second goal, though, that I had, and time will tell on that yeah. one, the second goal I had was I actually wanted to break out of that conversation. Right. Um, so, Bob, several of you guys will know this. We had gone through a little brief period there where for-profit colleges, are they predators or nimble critters? Yeah, this is a paper. And every paper I reviewed for two years had that framing. And whether they was going to prove or disprove the thesis, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, and I got it. It's the kind of thing that gets your paper through and you need a nifty title. That's fine. But the problem with the framing is it did sort of represent how we were having a conversation about for-profit colleges, which was that somehow if we could get the right combination of regulation for them, we would solve the problem. And both my experience of working in them and then later my research in them suggested it wouldn't. Right? If the reason why people are pursuing high risk, high cost credentials is because they feel economically insecure, 
getting rid of for-profit colleges won't solve that problem. Instead, we're going to have boot camps, micro degrees, badges, stickers, whatever the hell else they come up with all the time. I'm so, I mean, yeah, okay. But I mean, you know, we just keep coming up with this stuff and I go, well, uh, if it gets access to the federal student aid system, we're just gonna go through the same cycle. And in fact, we've seen this, Bob and those at the Century Foundation have this wonderful infographic right now of the boom and bust cycle of for-profit higher education over like the last 150 years. And we've been through this before. I think now is a particularly pernicious time because I think whereas before we had been through periods of sort of um, uh, economic recession, and while that might be sort of normal to capitalism, I think that what we have now is a protracted period of changing how we work permanently, right? And if you're like me and you think that's what's happening, then this is a particularly pernicious time for us to be offshore, uh, pushing people off into the private sector to gain their economic security. Um, so if I was willing to just call them predatory, I thought it lended itself too easily to very easy solutions. When I really wanted to locate the problem in, we have not done enough through social policy to help people buffer the effects of how we now work in the new economy, which is on demand, changing jobs more frequently, having to sort of uh, weather the, um, the sort of vicissitudes of how quickly the market changes by taking care of ourselves through 401ks, to pay for your own health insurance, right? We're gonna empower you. Empowerment also can feel a whole lot like being terrified, right? Um, and I actually thought that was sort of the bigger problem and I wanted to locate the solution there. That was a fascinating part of the, uh, the book. Uh, as I was saying, uh, Sarah, before, that's the area that I'm the least uh, competent on is the larger economic so Sarah, do you want to just uh, weigh in there about that part of the uh, book, and uh, do you think it was an accurate reading of what's going on? Yes, Sarah, yeah. did you think it was an accurate yeah. reading? <laughs> tell, me, tell me, tell me, tell yes. me. So I'm a labor reporter, right? Those of you in here who know me, that's what I do. I also have written a bunch about student debt and the way that works, and one of, well, before I dig into this, one of my favorite things about this book also is that like the predatory distinction I think also does another thing, which is that it implies that the students who are prey. doing this are prey, right? It implies that they don't make informed decisions. And while like a lot of people don't know what a for-profit college is, um, I had a boyfriend a few years ago who had never gone to college and who was thinking about going to one of these programs. And I remember also trying to like find the words to explain to him why I didn't think this was a good idea um, that didn't have the language and Tracy hadn't written this book yet, so I, 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 um, know, I apologize. But, and it was because, again, he couldn't figure out how to get a job. And I mean, hell, I graduated in 2002 with an English degree from a pretty fancy private university, and I couldn't get a job. Because as Tracy says, there were, there were things called jobs once, and they died around 2001. Um, <laughs> and a few of them came back somewhere in there. But so we're looking at a world where, as she says, like the entire way we work is changing. Um, this election was kind of a referendum on whether we could bring back these white men's industrial or manufacturing or coal mining or whatever jobs. And the, the bet here, the bet that many people made on Donald Trump was that we could. We can't. Um, we can't, for a lot of reasons. Um, 
And the, so the jobs that aren't those jobs are either, as Tracy said, right, are service jobs that are being done mostly by women, mostly by black women and immigrant women. Um, some of the immigrant women being black women, but that's another story. Um, and they are these quote unquote knowledge economy jobs, which I'm betting that a lot of people in this room do. Um, and a lot of those are jobs that, as she said, right, are you move through them faster. I've had, I graduated from, I finished grad school in 2009. I've had three full-time jobs, a paid internship, and I've been a freelancer in between all of those things. Um, and that's, and I'm a person with a master's degree from a, you know, a flagship state university. Um, so when we think about like what higher education is for now, right? Um, when I went to college, and I'm betting for a lot of people in this room, as you write about in the book, um, a lot of us went to college just sort of thinking that like, well, you go to college, that's what you do, and then you get out of college and you'll find a job, and that's kind of how it goes. And now people are looking to go to school to come out with a very particular credential to get a very particular job, and that's not just in for-profits. The other thing that, I, thing that I think is really important about Tracy's work is that it connects what's going on in these for-profits to everyone else, right? Like, when we talk about this, and we talk about the corporatization of Harvard or Yale or these things being a, a hedge fund with a university attached, it is the same process, right? It is, it is turning these things where we used to believe in education as a social good, as something that you should do regardless of whether it was going to get you a job and what kind of job it was going to get you. Now we think of it as a job training process. And the employers want it to be a job training process. That's one of my other favorite things about the book is where she stresses over and over again what the employers want out of workers. And we want, they want them to be cheaper, to be more trained, which those two things should be contradictory, right? Um, and they want them to be more compliant, right? There are fewer unions. They certainly don't want those. Um, and so all of these things, this is what right, what the workforce is expected to be now. And this is, again, the, the two schools that you worked at. I mean, you must have planned this. <laughs> so, you planned yeah. your life around this. Right? I tell, this students, I tell students, when you write it in reverse, you can always make it look like it was a plan. Right, but it really is. It really is, because it's these two, these two different parts of the economy. Um, the other thing that I'm, I'm fascinated with out of this book, and I really am sad that you never got to write the official paper about the welfare reform connection. Yeah. Because um, it's fantastic. But yeah, and so when we think about education as something that is just there to get you a job, when you were literally the, the guy who had been in the, the military, I forget which part, that said, I need a credential that translates my experience to the workforce, like you're literally just buying that piece of paper. You're not thinking about the education as the quality of it. And one of the things, um, Laura will talk about this in much more depth, but. Um, I remember talking to some of the, the Corinthian students who were the debt strikers who were set, talking and complaining about the education they were getting. And this one, the one um, guy who was saying to me, like, hey, I, you know, I worked really hard on this, and then my professor just disappeared halfway through the semester. And I said, how am I supposed to take this final when my professor's not been here, and we just got a new person last week? And they're like, oh, we're going to give you an A anyway. And he's like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm working at this here, man. Make it like mean something. Um, Right, there is still that expectation, even from students who are enrolling in these for-profits. Yeah, that's intention with 
yeah. the questions and, of, of yeah. the job market. And that is actually part of the, uh, thank you for bringing that up. That is, uh, yeah, the flip side of the sort of predator construction was, yes, that the students were not making rational choices. That what they, in my argument, I really wanted to push back on that idea least of which was because yeah. most of them are black women. Right. <laughs> and I don't like things that say we're stupid. <laughs> and so I really wanted to push back on that idea and explore what the constraints were on people's sure. decision making instead. Um, and, it w and one of the sort of pushbacks for me um, for that came in the many students through this project who said to me, they did want their education to be, if not hard, meaningful. And in lieu of, uh, of them having sort of either prestige or um, some external validation, that their, uh, that their education was meaningful, they came up with their own system of making it meaningful. The problem is when they did that, it was in ways that was, um, you know, compounding sort of uh, the predatory aspects of it. For many of the students, for them, what made it meaningful was how much they were paying for it, for example. Yeah. Right? When you did, when, without sort of symbols of institutional prestige, they relied on their high debt to say this education was valuable. The very thing that we think of as being the warning signal to millions of students, oh, they should have known by $90,000, right? They should have known, why didn't they get out? For them, I've spent $90,000, that's right. That's how much it means. As one woman told me, they wouldn't have let me spend $90,000 on it if it wasn't worth $90,000. And I went, <clears throat> they oh. being, yeah, I went, okay. <laughs> You've got a point. So uh, one thing that I've I found from writing, I, I've, I've written about the for-profit since about 1995, so it, yeah, and uh, I've gone to, you know, I've talked to students while they're in for-profit colleges, and you usually get one story, but once they actually leave, the number of them who will say, like, oh my god, they totally fooled me, you know, or they tricked me about this, or they said that I was going to, it was going to be easy to get a job, so I just wonder, from no. that perspective as to whether, you yeah, know. Yeah, no, everybody, so um, there's not a whole lot of great survey data. One has been done by the Kresge Foundation of currently enrolled and then alumnus, alumni of uh, for-profit colleges. And so over, overwhelmingly in the literature and sort of these um, small studies, what you saw was that pattern, yeah. which is why I deliberately did not speak to students yeah. who had left, Yeah. right? I actually did not want it to be tainted by their now experience of trying to repay the student loan. Yeah. Um, because that's actually, again, kind of like writing the book in reverse. You can make everything make sense. Right. I didn't actually, I wasn't interested in their rationalization well, of it. it that's right. Yeah, that makes I sense. wanted their actual their reflections on their experiences of it and how they made meaning of it during yeah. the time. Yeah. So I actually did not include in this sample students who uh -huh. um, had either withdrawn or graduated. Yeah. Well, and again, though, right, I, as I said, I got out of, a, you know, a private liberal arts school with a very good reputation. In 2002, graduated magna cum laude. There was nothing wrong with my degree. I still couldn't get a job. I was waiting tables. You know. So I mean, if we're going to just judge it based on labor market outcomes, that's a judgment on the labor market. And the labor market sucks. Um, I wrote down this. The, one of my favorite quotes from the book was, if we have a shitty credentialing system in the case of for-profit colleges, then it is likely because we have a shitty labor market. Yeah. And I'd like to thank Tara, my editor, who's sitting right there, for letting that one go. It was. <laughs> It's real. I, you know, I almost, I also finished grad school in 2009, and like God knows how I managed to get a job out of that. But because um, I have a journalism degree, it's not like that's in high demand. Yeah. But you know, it it really is. Yeah, these are questions of labor market. And I, I interviewed Tressie for a, a story, and then it wound up. This quote is also in my book. Um, 
where she says, you know, we're prescribing education as a solution for a labor market problem. And that's not solving the labor market. And somebody the other day, I was on some, um, oh, it was our Future of Work panel. Um, and somebody asked, you know, should we be retraining people for the, these jobs that don't suck? And I'm like, well, if you just give everybody a, a, you know, a certificate in computer programming or whatever it is, then you've got 10 million people with a computer programming degree, and then that goes down, yeah. right? Then that's not an expensive job anymore. Yep. So, you know, these, I mean, these like questions kind of are bigger than just education. Yeah, and that seems to be the uh, Democrats' fallback when you have Hillary mm. Clinton. Yeah. Or oh, you just need to be retrained. You need yeah. to go, which is yeah. not a very popular uh, thing for people to hear anyway. No. Yeah. Um, Bob, I wanted to. Uh, uh, Talk a little bit. Have you? Sorry. Um, have you talked? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's been drinking. <laughs> you know that, Bob. Um, but uh, the work that you guys are doing right now has been really interesting about looking at these cycles. Um, and you know, we're now facing. We've gone through the Obama administration. There was efforts at reform that you helped to lead, and now we're back to uh, an administration that seems to love for-profit colleges no matter what they do to students. So is this, I mean, uh, is this anomaly or is this what we, is this what we always see? Um, well, there are a lot of, there are a lot of similarities. Um, and, and when we started doing this history series, I was familiar with what happened in the late 80s because I started as a Senate staffer in 1989. Um, and one of the first things that I was told to do as a young uh, staffer was to go to a hearing where um, where my boss's name was was actually uh, listed among some who maybe did some favors for a for-profit college that had given some campaign contributions um, and uh, it you know ultimately everything was okay but it kind of um, led me in the direction of um, uh, that this stuff doesn't always isn't always as wonderful as it as it seems. You know, there were some of the owners of these schools who would come in, and in in a lot of ways, their the 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 sales pitch that they do to um, members of Congress is so much the same. It totally is. It's it's like the jobs of the future. Things are changing. We're more and more nimble than traditional colleges. We're serving the students who really need it. Yeah, nimble. I mean, they're just nimble. Oh yeah, for-profit. You know, we're nimble. We're the ones that are being responsive. Um, uh, you know, almost like the the job board thing that yeah, you had, where yeah. nine out of eleven of them would lead you to a job board with all of the like. Do you think? Or what, what was the words they used? Like, yeah. do you think you this can job board will help you find a job that yeah. will change your life? Right, and it was. Oh, it was. <laughs> do you was, say it, no? You can't say no. Do you think this would help? Sure. Yes. yes. You know, and that, so it's a yes. You know, so do you think these colleges, by having access to, to student federal student loans, will help the economy boom? Yes. I mean, that's really the way that it felt when they'd come in and make these presentations. And here I was at this hearing where it was very clear that students had been just, their lives were destroyed by having enrolled in, in the school that they, they had been enrolled in. So I was kind of in there on the, when things had gotten really, um, really bad. Um, and when in fact, I mean, if you had done the Ronald Reagan um, uh, work, you would have realized that actually the Reagan administration 
was outraged at and was very much focused on these are for-profit colleges that are ripping people off, including taxpayers, and yep. this has to stop. We now, really it was, Reagan found a problem yeah. he didn't like. It, yeah. it, it, it was. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think that was, and I really think that yeah. was that is more the history here. I mean, part of what's going on here is a change in the Republican Party, where Republicans used to actually look at things somewhat rationally from a somewhat different perspective, but at least there was a, a rational universe, look there, right. where, they re where it's like, okay, look, there's actually a structure of accountability to people who benefit financially if you spend as little as possible on the education and charge as much as possible. Maybe that's part of the problem, you know? I mean, like, they actually recognized that. The idea that some, that many current Republicans can't see that uh, you know, it's probably one of the least scary of the things that are happening right now, but but it is but it is scary. So that's what's different. But what is the same is this tendency for there to be horrible. So basically, federal government opens up financial aid first with the GI GI bill, just kind of saying, "Great, go out and spend some government money on an education." Lots of good things happen, but then a whole lot of fly-by-night or. Uh, not fly-by-night, but rip-off schools open up just to take advantage of the money. The government imposes some reforms. They kind of get some of the abuses out of the way. And then several years go by, and the industry, sort of new people, new people in Congress, new people in the industry, they say, well, those were problems of the past. Um, and then the cycle begins again with um, reforms that either wither away because of consequences or are actually repealed. And um, repeals occurred in, in the mid-90s and then early in the George W. Bush administration where they changed regulations that basically allowed things to come roaring back in ways that um, would not have happened if not for those changes in regulations. So, it's not clear what this administration will do, but I'm definitely worried. We seem to be in repeal mode, yeah. right? I mean, I well, think we got to get Jerry one regu for say. two regulations for every one. Right. We yeah. put out yeah. some. I was just about to say, yeah. now what yeah. Jerry Falwell just said. Jerry Falwell has been yeah. uh, made yeah. the. Yeah, and I should say, I know Jerry Falwell is at a, a nonprofit college, but nonprofit and public universities have not have not been helpful on these kinds of things because nope. they go in there thinking, great, let's get rid of regulations. And they don't really do the advocacy on let's stop the predatory bad schools, whatever you want to call them, um, uh, because they, you know, as you know, part of this, I guess, is just sort of the nature of trade associations in Washington D.C. It's like they focus on the raw, 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 get, get rid of regulations, okay. and the damage it does, the damage part of it, is not their problem. Now, um, one of the things that I've been looking at in my own work is. Uh, and I've talked to you about this, is looking sort of at the Obama record on for-profit colleges. And uh, it's a complicated record. Some people see it as being, um, you know, oh, they came in and they, you know, they came in with reform and, you know, Bob was there and, uh, and uh, led the efforts to do gainful employment, uh, which we could explain, but uh, I don't really want to be the one to do it. No. Um, and, you know, uh, I put it in a footnote. Yeah, I wouldn't go on there. And, uh, <laughs> and to uh, uh, discharge uh, the debt of students who are defrauded, which is called borrowed defense. Um, one of the, so, uh, and talking to Bob, I know that uh, it took a while for Bob to convince others at, in the administration that this was the right way to go, that there was a lot of fear about 
take it on the industry and yeah, stuff like so that. Yeah, tell me if I'm right. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> My sense has always been that there was reluctance initially. The administration was sort of dragged into this fight because of the timing of the way some of the abuses were going. This was not a fight they went looking for. Um, it wasn't a fight they went looking for. I'd say there were, there were differences of opinion within the administration. Um, remember what the, t so this was 19, so 2008 into 2009, the depth of the recession, the economy collapsing, but one aspect of all of that was that there was a lot of money being pushed out the door in, um, for Re Recovery Act uh, money. And there was a big focus on, um, we don't want to be blamed for any scandals. We want to make sure there aren't scandals. So, so to the extent that I had any angle on it was, look at history. Let's make sure that if anybody looks back, <laughs> they will say that we were cautious, that we weren't blind to the possibility that there's a lot of fraud and abuse going on here. Um, and I'd say people were generally responsive to that. They were um, up to a point, but it was also really clear um, that there were limits, politic, you know, there were limits on how far we could go. Um, and I went behind the scenes to people on Capitol Hill to find, basically to find out how many Democrats will we lose if we go this far? How many Democrats will we lose if we go this far? And because we could not do something where we could, where we would end up with, a, with an overridable um, uh, you know, a bill. Um, in Congress, so it was, uh, you know, we were limited in how far we could go, but um, but there was an interest in um, making sure that, or doing what we could to protect, to put in some protections uh, yeah. for students. So one of the, the tragedies to me, in a way, um, I think the most important issue that came up uh, came up towards the end of the Obama administration, which was looking at what do we do about these students who have taken on all of this debt. Um, and they've been defrauded, um, you know, for decades. We've had, we've known that there are schools that have defrauded students, and yet those students are being chased by collection agencies. And I, I think if you look at, if we went and did a real examination of all the defaulters in this country, how many of them went to for-profit schools um, and went 25 years ago and, and, and still have that debt uh, for something that they got nothing out of? Um, so uh, there was a big push at the very end of the administration on a thing called borrowed defense, which is also another complicated issue, but basically it was something that was in the law that it would allow the department to discharge the debt of, uh, of, of borrowers. Um, and it had been in the law, but no one had done anything about it for years. I mean, it was like everyone sort of forgot it was ever there. Um, but there was a group that was pushing, uh, that sort of discovered the Corinthian students and, and your group um, really pushed on that. And I know there are a lot of differences of opinion as to how far the Obama administration went. Uh, my, what I think is a real tragedy is that it end, they finally got somewhere, even if you're not happy with how far they went, and now we have a Trump administration that's just ending that process, I'm pretty sure we're not going to see anyone get their loans discharged. So uh, 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 Laura, do you want to talk about uh, your efforts to, on I'd that? I'd love to. This is actually a very triggering conversation for me because, yeah. um, and we all have our own personal narratives, but I will say that the Department of Ed under the Obama administration set up an incredibly complex obstacle course 
for people who had been defrauded, which is not necessarily surprising, but disgraceful considering. So look, I mean, it's, it's very clear that these folks have been scammed for years, defrauded. There's evidence, there's proof, there's investigation, there's lawsuits. Um, we, in, as organizers, won the argument publicly that people should receive relief. And the Department of Ed and the administration um, have, they've made it incredibly difficult. And probably less than 2% of people who really deserve relief got it. And at the same time, uh, the department was very, it was like very creative and wily in the way that they refused to actually provide any sort of justice or relief. They did it in, in multiple ways. And I really, it was, you know, I, I congratulate them for it um, by doing things like, and this is what, this is liberal Democrats do this really well. We really mm -hmm. care. We, we, we hold these values and we care. Not really enough to act upon them, but we care, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, as an organizer working with an organization that's called the Debt Collective, which is essentially uh, debtor organizing, it's membership driven debtor, debtor organizing because um, the labor organizing space has fallen apart. What do people have? They have debt. They have debt. And um, that is a kind of collective identity if, yeah. if you organize around it. So, yeah, I mean, I have, I have nothing good to say about the Department of Ed. I have only negative things to say, and I can get into incredible details, but the media intervention in which they pretended to provide relief had relatives of mine writing and saying congratulations after two years or a year and a half of organizing. Um, we went to Washington, D.C. to uh, and brought student debtors to talk about their concerns where Democrats sat across, sat around the table and um, gestured that they're very concerned and that they really heard people's pains and that they wanted to provide relief, but and then, you know, later on would bring out again and again the taxpayer narrative to scare people. Yes, of course you deserve relief, but then people's taxes will go up if you actually get relief, which we all know is not true anyways. Um, so, I, at this point, yeah, there's a lot to say, and, I, and I'm happy to get into it, but I also don't want to derail yeah. The, uh, yeah. Book launch. Well, it's a very that's okay. I mean, it's a it's a, it's definitely a complicated issue, and it's one that I've you know thought a lot about, and I do think that um, I probably give them a lot more credit than you give them, uh, just based on the various pressures that were going on. But the fact that they would not discharge. Uh, what, can you talk a little bit about the pressures? Well, uh, I'm just I just. The fact that they would not do group discharges, uh, I think, really was a disservice. And a group discharge means that basically, like, they would say, okay, Corinthian defrauded you, so everybody who went during that period of time should have like their whole cat discharge. category of people. Um, yeah. and, I, and that would have been the moral and ethical thing to do. Does everybody know the Corinthian yeah. story? Yeah. Do we have to go into any detail for this? Great. Okay, does anyone okay. want to okay. talk about yeah, that? Yeah, I'm like, great, no. Okay, go ahead. Oh, do you? Okay. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, All right. Do you want to talk? Very briefly. Yeah, you tell the story. A bunch of low-income folks from different communities, communities of color, single parents, people that Tressie described, were recruited into a set of schools called Corinthian Colleges, Inc., which was Everest, Wyotech, and Heald. 
had been defrauded. There was um, years and years of investigation. And uh, the CFPB then went to sue Genesis, a private lender, for predatory lending and fraud. Um, we were introduced to these student debtors via a librarian whistleblower and several other whistleblowers, and also another project that we are running where we are buying uh, debt that couldn't be repaid through the Rolling Jubilee. So we purchased some of this debt and then met individuals and then proceeded to organize with them uh, for debt relief. So it's a huge, you know, it's like McDonald's in terms of schools. It's a huge change. I was about to say, so Corinthian was one of, uh, in the book I described sort of these two sort of uh, structures of for-profit colleges, again, the beauty college and the technical college, right, that was serving two different, basically serving two different uh, segments of students, even though they had an overarching commonality in how they were organized. So Corinthian was in this beauty college sort of mold, but it was a shareholder college, like the technical college, so it was at scale. Right, and scale is the real sort of thing to sort of keep in mind here. All of those commercials you saw, that the, uh, Corinthian was the get off your couch. Why are you on your couch? Call right now. This is that's Corinthian. That's, but what's that at scale? So, yeah. so what's at scale? How many people a year you think went in? Uh, so I know by the time they closed, they had about a half million students, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. today, not that many. No, maybe well, 150,000. No, they had more. They had more. Right. Yeah. 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 So to so to date now, yeah. So to date now, there's maybe 15,000 people who have received relief. All right. So that's out of how many we're talking about. Out of well, I don't know. I mean, depends on when you start to decide and how you regulate and who gets a discharge and who's worthy and who's not. There are a bunch of these very confused people now. These were associate's degrees and things like technical, sort of technical light sort of things. Um, so business, business, which is I very to broadly getting business defined. degrees. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think you asked what the pressures, and I want to probably get to Bob to talk about because he's been inside the government a little bit to know. From my perspective, uh, I think it's purely political. I think it's like also shows you usually why the Democrats are the ones who are always making the compromises, losing, uh, uh, yeah. losing, and being and being scared of what people losing. are going to, uh, yeah. And being scared of what people are going to say about them. Anyway, what do you think? Um, well, so I was only there in the first 18 months of the Obama administration. <laughs> We're blaming you, Bob. So, it's all your fault. Um, I so if I'd been there, we would have done all these things. No, yeah. I, I don't okay. know. So I, in, in imagining what goes on there, knowing the people, knowing these processes, um, I mean, got, there's an element of it that's political, but there's a whole lot of it that is bureaucratic, yeah. legal, bureau. Yeah. There's some combination of bureaucratic and legal word that we can yeah, come up with here that is just, that just ties people in knots. And they, and they'll negotiate, I, I am imagining them like negotiating this process between yeah. four different offices at the department and somebody over at the Justice Department yep. where somebody's concerned that somebody's going to claim that we, yep. that we discharged one student's loan, but that person actually graduated and got a job and maybe, and maybe wasn't convinced to go because and of the real law. Fear that that I heard that, over and, and over just, again and with just this. This was the fear that I heard in like White House, you know, those higher ed circle groups that I would go to. First of all, you need to know these are overwhelmingly economists, and I'm not being funny. That actually does matter. I mean, I can yes. make an economist joke, but for real, legit. That's when I the breaks come out. Right? Yeah, we'll make the economist yeah, a lot of a lot of what is being negotiated that in the rooms that I was in, where we would have these conversations. First of all, they would see me come and they'd be like, "No, say anything other than anything about for-profit colleges." They were truly scarred. Right. They had been surprised by. So I came along in the second um, Obama's term, right when I was invited to these sorts of things. Um, uh, 
for reasons nobody understands. But I was sitting in the room and as a sociologist, and it was fascinating, they were extremely scarred by the political process of trying to undertake it in the first um, term. They could not believe truly how political it had gotten. They thought this was a no-brainer. And, I, and I'm, I'm serious, they were not prepared for the level of politics around higher education policy that was very much being shaped by economists who thought you just lay out the rational case for the inputs and the outputs, the cost that, was, that is being undertaken, and reasonable people who understand numbers will be on board, right? Mm. Um, I'm telling you, I saw it over and over again, and I really saw it as a limitation of perhaps much too much, too much uh, involvement of sort of a, uh, economists in what is fundamentally a social process, and they really didn't yeah. understand that. So when I would say to them, no, people feel a certain way about these things, and there is actually a way politics is still dealing with people's emotions about money, right? And they were very unprepared for that. Yeah, I did. I was told several times people would talk sort of off the record that yes, they had not been prepared for the level of bureaucratic complexity. Yeah. Right, that they would get calls every time they made a move to do anything. They got calls not only from people on the Hill, but they got calls from states. Right, this is one of those issues that prompts people's uh, states' rights sort of feeling. There are some threats things. by lobbyists too. Right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there was a That's significant lobby in yeah. favor of that, and almost no lobby that was calling them on the other and side. That, yeah. These students are not a sympathetic group to them. And I, I, I do want to, because um, sometimes when I explain to people why things don't happen at the Department of Education, they think that I'm um, defending you know, yourself, defending yeah. or defending the department. I'm just trying to say like that. I like I can see those meetings happening to be to you know at the same time yeah. when stuff like this happens, like many years ago the SNL crisis, and the victims yeah. were more middle class, upper middle class, and some poor people. Like, Congress just passes a lot of deal with all of the legal Although, let's be real, like, this was very similar to what happened with the foreclosure crisis. And a lot of the victims of the foreclosure crisis are white middle class people. Right. And they also did not get blanket relief in any way. And this is a thing, like, I make jokes about the Democrats losing, but honestly, like, if more people had felt after the last eight years like this administration had given a crap that they were suffering, Donald Trump would not be president. I'm sorry, it's true. And the thing is that like the Democratic Party has gotten really bogged down in numbers and white papers and economists and details. And this was like the one of the major, major problems with Hillary Clinton's campaign is Donald Trump is out there yelling, make America great again. And I've got an ad on my TV in upstate New York with Ivanka telling me she's going to get me paid family leave. And Hillary Clinton is running ads about how terrible Donald Trump is. Yeah. Um, but like, and there's amazing policy papers. She wrote good policy papers. Who the hell reads policy papers? Bryce does. There's like two other people in this room who have read those policy papers. I didn't read them. A lot of people them. in this room read those policy okay. papers. A few people in this room. How many people in this room read a Hillary Clinton policy paper? Give me some hands. All right, one, two, three, four, five, six, but, seven, eight, 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 so what right. I'm saying, though, is that like, so we see this, we saw this with the foreclosure crisis, where, again, people had to individually apply for things. They had to go through the HAMP process. They had to do this individually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The healthcare reform is you have to do it individually. I have to spend hours on the phone trying to explain to some person who doesn't understand what it's like to be a freelance journalist what my income is yeah. in order to get cheaper healthcare. And like, let me tell you, I'm, I don't want them to take it away. 
Please don't repeal the ACA. (laughs) But these things get individualized. They have to go through a ton of paperwork and like some walks in whatever think it's really cool because there's a 20-page white paper that they get to feel smart for reading. But it isn't helping people at scale. We're talking about scale here, right? It's not helping however many hundred thousand people went through this school and it and like we should talk about what happened with Corinthian is it shut down yeah. in the middle of the school year. Yeah, I mean again, it, yes, it's not helping. When we sh- when we came to DC, uh, there was a handler. I'm just going to say whatever I want because I don't mm-hmm. have docs hey. that I need to rely on, so I get to be honest about this stuff. Like, let's be honest. Before we go to DC, a handler is nervously calling me on the phone because he doesn't know what we're going to do. So he thinks we're going to burn it down. I don't know what he thinks. By the time we get there for this meeting. Yeah, well, you know. So by the time we get there for this meeting, he runs into the lobby and says, we want you to know you're our constituency. And I'm like, "Eh, you don't really understand who you're talking about. That's fine. And that we understand that this is the beginning of a tidal wave that we're trying to stop. And that's what the administration did for the next year and a half, is essentially try to individualize make more burdensome and stop any kind of relief from happening at every single turn. That is exactly what happened. And the last meeting that we had was the kicker. Because like close Eric, mm-hmm. is that what his name? I brought Brittany Prock from Texas. Brittany Prock mm-hmm. lost her job during the housing crisis. Right? Then she lost her house during the housing crisis. Then she went back to school to try to get a new job, to get a new skill, skill up. And she went to one of these schools, right? And then she was worse off than she was before. So now she's $55,000 in debt. She's got two kids that she can't feed. They're garnishing her wages. And she's sitting at the table with Joseph Smith, the guy who oversaw apparently the mortgage settlement that was a bunch of shit. And he's telling her this. "Um, I'm really sorry. I feel your pain. We're working really hard. We need more evidence. Mm. We need more evidence. Mm. And um, I really understand your desire to go to school and experience the American dream. I worked hard and I did that. My son, <coughs> he worked really hard. He paid his own oh way. God. So he rolls out this story <laughs> about oh, yeah, yeah. merit to this woman. And right. at that table, they all lost it. They oh, all God. lost it. Oh, wow. Because they jumped. They're like, you're telling me that, that we don't work hard wow. right now? Wow. Right? Huh. That's the story. So she still doesn't have any relief. Wow. People are having their wages garnished, their crazy. tax returns taken. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's we've got, I've got people in the book who talk about lost this homes. is the bootleg way to repay your student loan. Just right. wait for them to garnish their tax return. Yeah. Like they had the language for that. They knew that that's, it was one way to they'll at least get it cleared up and then they could re-enroll. Right? right. She was happy about yeah. the fact that this would take care of it so that she would be eligible to enroll in school again. Um, but it is so common that the students that I spoke to had developed this really complex language of talking about debt that is far different from anything that I think middle class people um, think uh, and how people talk about debt that really subverts almost every assumption we have about how it's working in these students' lives. Um, but the for-profit colleges know that about them very well and leverage that. And because the only thing that we know how to say is like what I knew how to say 15 years ago, which is there's no such thing as bad school, mm-hmm. right? There was no political narrative to counter the idea that you could go to school and be worse off. Mm-hmm. Everything that we have sold through social policy for about 70 years has said any sort of skill development is a net positive. 
We literally, the, what was shocking to me is we have a paucity of language here. We don't even have a way in social policy to talk about schooling yeah. being a negative. Because of that, it is very easy for politicians who are always going to go ahead and politician, because that's really, that's the job, right, to roll that out and have it be effective when, and people's response is to be emotional, and people tend to get emotional in their response when they don't have the language to express what they're trying to express. We have done a piss poor job of giving people a language and a framework to say something about education that is not about them being inherently flawed, yep. right? Yep. But that there was something about structurally what was allowed for them. Um, and fundamentally, seriously, more than anything, what I hope people get is a language to talk about that. So I think uh, we're going to wrap it up, but thank you so much. And, uh, <laughs>